What an awesome day. What an awesome worship moment. Thank you guys. It was awesome. Thank you everybody for being here. Uh, if you are new to this church, I know I might have not introduced myself. My name is Mark. I have the privilege of being a part of this amazing church, an amazing team. Uh, and for all of those that made it out here on this Labor Day weekend, thank you so much. I mean, we thought nobody would be here today. And we sort of thought that this would be a great weekend to move into our new venue because no one would come. But here you all are. So hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Uh, I mean, we don't have to talk about the venue much more. But what I do want to say this morning before we get anywhere is, you know, obviously this is all new to us. And, you know, this is a different way we're doing things. We have our kids over that side, which is it's an amazing venue on its own. And we're here. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that we're figuring out and a lot of stuff that, we, that we've been working on quite diligently. But I do want to ask you for this. If you could have grace with us just over the next few weeks, just so we can uh, make sure we get our processes tightened up. But if you see stuff that's not quite, you know, running as smoothly as it should be, perhaps it is already, I'm not sure. But just have some grace with us while we figure out and try and optimize the processes. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Now that you've said it, you can't complain. Amen. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We are going to have a grand opening in the near future. Um, and that's going to be exciting on its own. But I do want to spend a few minutes before we get into anything else, just honoring the team that made this morning possible. I say that because on Tuesday when we got our certificate of occupation, man, we were nowhere near ready being, to be here in this venue, to get you know, a service done here on Sunday. But what blew me away was how many people just put up their hands, showed up, and worked so hard to get this place done. So first of all, I want to thank the Lord. Obviously, He gets all the glory. This is His building for His purposes, as I said earlier. And so we would be remiss not to start without Him. He gave us this space and He gave it to us for a reason. It's up to us now to figure out what that is and to take the commission He's given us and make it known. I also want to thank uh, the video team, Jim Flores, who's been here, man, more late nights than I can count. Stephen, Radine. Radine's been co-opted onto the video team. Jeremy Siebert, Mike, Alessio, and all of the guys that spent late nights wiring stuff and getting all of this stuff done. I want to thank Kelly, Kelsey, Shannon, Robin, Kat, and the Decor team for making this place look the way it does. Amen. I want to thank Brandy McDaniel. She's not here today, but I want to thank her for the plans that she drew up. I mean, this place is amazing. This is a product of her architecture, and so we want to thank her. We want to thank Barnett Signs, friends of ours from Dallas who love this church, who gifted us all of these amazing signs. I mean, what a privilege. What a blessing. I want to thank Charlie, Robin, Cassie, Sal, Stephen Levy, not only for getting that venue ready, but the guys spent a lot of time trying to figure out how kids would worship in the new space. And they've done a lot of work in that. And it's amazing. And I'm so excited, not just for this space, but I'm excited for that entire space that God has for the next generation. We have a generation behind us that we have to sow into, that we have to prepare to take the reins from us. And please, God, let us do a good job of that. And so I'm excited for them. I want to thank Ryan and the band for being ready and practiced here in the new venue. And I want to thank JR at the back there. Some of you might know JR, some of you might not JR, know JR, but I'm telling you now that without him, a lot of this technical stuff would never have happened. Man, I spent, I spent days trying to get the screen to switch on. Never mind, make it work. Anyway, so JR, you're awesome. We appreciate you, and we th we're so grateful that the Lord has brought you to us. I also want to thank any other volunteer that showed up during the week. I know Eben, the other day we were working, and Eben just showed up. He was like, hey, I had a feeling you guys would be here and he ended up staying here with us for hours just helping us set stuff up. If you came by, prayed for us, served in any capacity, worked in any capacity, thank you so much. And lastly, or second to lastly, I want to thank all the elders, the elders' wives, the deacons, the leaders of this church, as well as you as a church, every single one of you, for making this dream come true. 
whether that was through encouragements, whether that was through your prayers, whether that was through your giving, we have you to thank. And so you guys are awesome and you deserve a hand yourselves. Amen. You don't seem too excited to give yourselves a hand. That's okay. It's good. Humility is good. That's right. And then lastly, but not least, I want to thank my wife. I mean, she is being patient with me through this process. I've realized that new venues are not my thing. Um, I'm not really gifted at, at this. It stresses me out and it causes me to become quite a miserable human being. Um, and so I want to thank my wife for her patience, her encouragement, and just for all that she's always done. She, she got this place clean for today. And so I want to thank her specifically for keeping it together, keeping me together, and for all that she does for this local church. I can't do it without her and none of us you know, can do it without our wives. Amen. Now that that's done, we can get back to this morning's series, the book of Revelation. It's uh, awfully big on the screen. Uh, it seems quite scary up there. We are still in the series. If you're a visitor here today, we are in the book of Revelations. We're almost at the end of three of the third of eight major sections found in the book. And what blows my mind is that we only have two weeks after today left in this section. So what you can expect to happen after this section's over, we're going to take about a one or two week break from Revelation. We're going to go through some kingdom values and then we're going to regroup come back to Revelations, and our plan at this stage is to finish the fourth section, which is the seven visions before our Advent season starts. But before we get there, let's just recap what we've learned so far in these, in these seven trumpets. Firstly, our prayers have ascended to heaven. We were talking about it earlier this morning, and our prayers are a part of the movements of God in bringing His final plan for redemption to bear. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that if we didn't pray, God wouldn't have moved, but our prayers have played a part, and that is by God's design. The prayers of the saints have reached God. The, pay, the prayers of us not wanting judgment, but seeking His vindication have got into the throne, and God is releasing the plans of His redemption into this world. What we also realize is that while there's a lot of judgment and severity in these things, there is always hope for us as believers. There's a hope that there is a king on the throne. I mean, if that doesn't give you comfort, I don't know what will. Jesus is on the throne. He's ruling and reigning. We know that these trumpets aren't indiscriminate. They're not God just wanting to punish a wicked world. They are God warning a wicked world. The trumpets are, by virtue of what they do, alarm bells ringing so that the people of this world who have rejected their Savior can come back to God. We also know that the seven trumpets are similar to the seven seals in some ways. And what we've seen over and over again is this sort of concentric spiral that keeps going around the same event. At least this is my interpretation. I know that some of you might vary on this. But I really do believe we're looking at one plan, one plan being made manifest through Jesus Christ as he unrolls these plans. And we're just seeing it from different perspectives. And then what we know about the trumpets themselves, the first four represented the natural judgments of God, the judgments against the land, the sea, the rivers, and the cosmos, the things that we see happen around us in the natural world, things of devastation. But the last three trumpets, on the other hand, were quite different. Not only were they more severe or are they more severe, but what we also saw is the unleashing of the demonic realm in these. We saw something of some scary pictures. In fact, some of what we're seeing hap is happening right now in the world, I believe. We know that the world is definitely blind. And what we also know is that the world is definitely being tormented. But there is some stuff that is unleashed through this supernatural demonic attack that we still yet to see. Last week's trumpet, probably the most scariest that we've dealt with up until this point, one third of humanity being wiped out, including the church. Is quite a scary thing to think about. But we're not at that stage yet. And so while the last few weeks have been quite difficult to hear, there is good news. And I say that because this morning, this text that we're about to read is going to remind us as God's children that even in the midst of the storms of life, 
there is hope. I say that because in this particular phase of the vision that John is about to give to us, God directs John's attention to something that's going to happen before the seventh and the final judgment. It's almost like the interlude that happened at the between the sixth and the seventh seal. Do you remember what happened? There was the sixth seal, which was the day of Armageddon, everything collapsing. Isaiah said the scroll of God was being rolled up, and, and we saw this devastation and this destruction. But then in between that and seal seven, which is the final judgment, what we end up seeing is the 144,000 of God's people being sealed. Something similar is happening here, except in this interlude, there's four particular events that are mentioned. The first two we'll cover this morning, and the next two we'll cover next week. The, the two that we'll cover today are the seven thunders, and the little scroll. And then next week, we'll cover the measuring of the temple and the two witnesses. And what's important for us to know from each of these events that we go through, these four distinct events, and we'll see this as we go through this morning's text, is it speaks to God's love and His protection over His people. They're the picture of a loving God reminding His church that no matter what we have or are will go through in our lives, whether that is because of life in general or whether that is because of the consummation of God's majestic plan, His eyes are on us. We're at the center of His attention and it's in the darkest of moments that His glory is always bright enough to penetrate whatever we are facing. And so turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 10 and we're going to start with verse 1. But as you guys know, I like to pray before I preach. That wasn't even me preaching. Gosh, okay. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have to hear your word. Thank you, Lord, that this word will fall on fertile soil. We prayed for it this morning in our prayer meeting, Lord, and we continue to pray that your word would open our ears and that we'd hear things, perhaps even things that we've never been able to hear before. I pray that hearts will be set free today and that, Jesus, you would be made much of, that you would be glorified in this message, nothing else and no one else. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to read quite a lot of scripture this morning. From Revelation, we're reading the entire chapter, but what we're also going to be doing is jumping around a little bit to other parts of the Old Testament too. I feel like I'm getting a sunburn on the back of my neck, but anyway, I need to wear um, some of that SP40 here when I come and preach. Verse 1 says this, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. This is John speaking from his heavenly perspective, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun shining, and his legs like pillar of fire. The first point that we take out of this particular passage is that for us to be secure in God's love and in his protection, we have to understand that Jesus has to be our eternal hope. They might be thinking, but how did you get that from this particular verse? Well, I'll explain to you. The first time we were introduced to a mighty angel in the book of Revelation is in Revelation chapter 5. In fact, in, uh, I think it's in 5 verse 2, no, no, maybe somewhere around there. John sees this mighty angel coming down from heaven. It is 5 verse 2. And this angel asks a question. He says, who is worthy to take the scroll and to unlock its seals? That angel is asking a very pointed question. Who is able to bring God's plan for eternity to bear? The good news is there was found someone that was worthy and his name is Jesus. This time, the angel in question is not asking a question. Instead, it seems that this angel carries attributes that up until this point have only been used to describe God the Father or Jesus Christ the Son. For example, in Daniel 7.13, we hear about this vision that Daniel, Daniel says, which I believe actually leads to Jesus opening the scroll. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. There's this picture of this mighty Savior coming on clouds, 
Revelations 1 verse 7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will not wail on account of him. There's no question here that that's referring to Jesus. And if that wasn't enough, this angel that we see in this text, the one with the face that like, shines like the sun and the pillars of bronze, I believe is referring to the same angel we see all throughout the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord. In Exodus chapter uh, 3 verse 2, we encounter this angel. And it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, speaking of Moses, in a flame of fire, out the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. In fact, if you read that passage in its entirety, Moses needed to take his shoes off his feet because where he was standing was holy ground. And I only know holy ground exists in one place, and that's wherever Jesus is. The same angel appears to Joshua. Tim spoke about that passage this morning in Joshua chapter 5. Joshua's just crossed the Jordan. The nation of Israel is about to take their inheritance. They're about to conquer this promised land. And the first city they face is the city of Jericho. And so Joshua wakes up one early morning and he looks outside the city and he notices that there's this man. And I don't know what he looked like. I don't know how fearsome he was, but he had a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua asks him a question. He says to him, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Verse 14, and the angel of the Lord, or this angel, this person says, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. What's interesting is there's no angel in all of Scripture that will ever ask anybody to worship them. In fact, if you try and worship an angel, they will always direct your attention back to God. This angel told Joshua to take his shoes off his feet, to get on his knees, because the place that he was standing was holy ground. And what's interesting about what happens in this account with this angel is Joshua asks him a very simple question. Are you going to fight for Israel, your people, or are you going to fight for Jericho? Notice the angel doesn't say, yes, Joshua, I'm here for you, or no, I'm here for Jericho. He says, neither. I'm not here for your plans. I'm not here for their plans. I'm here for my plans. My name is Jesus, and I'm going to see that the plan of God's eternal redemption is going to come to bear. God is not to be involved in our plans or what we do. We need to line up our hearts with God's plan. Wherever we see that word, the angel of the Lord, mentioned throughout the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for it is Yahweh, without the vowels and without the, 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 the completion of the word, because in Hebrew culture and in the way Jew, Jewish people believe is that you cannot actually pronounce the name of God. Yahweh means Adonai, it means the creator God of the universe. And so what I believe John is seeing in this particular angel, is not an, in this vision, is not an angel. I think he's seeing Jesus Christ himself. What's more, there is one element in the way that Jesus is described that I want us to highlight. And that is what Jesus has over his head. In this text, it says that he carries this rainbow across his head. This is the same rainbow that John first encountered covering the throne of God when he gets elevated to heaven. It's the same rainbow that speaks to the promises that God made to this earth after the flood. In Genesis chapter 9 and verse 12, we read about the post-flood account and God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, the rainbow, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. The covenant was ratified at the cross, friends. We are part of the new covenant. There is hope, there is destiny, there is a future for the people of God. We need to redeem the rainbow, friends. It speaks to us of God's magnificence, His character, His nature, His love, His mercy, His justice. 
The promise reminds us that no matter what we have or will experience, there is always hope. And hope this morning, friends, has a name, and his name is Jesus. It's a representation that when all is said and done, we will not be left abandoned. We will instead be left with the consummation of history past and the arrival of an eternity to come with God on a new, redeemed, and restored earth. That's the promise that we have. Jesus, friends, is our eternal hope. Not man, not the systems of this world, not the politics of this world, not the politicians of this world, not the comforts of this world, not the houses of this world. Jesus Christ, friends, is our one and only hope. Verse 2 continues. It says, he had a little scroll open in his hand. We're going to speak about the scroll a little bit later on. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. For us, and this is point number two, to be securing God's love and in his protection, we need to understand that our perspective of who Jesus is needs to grow up a little bit. Think about what images we elicit or we generate in our minds when we meditate on Jesus. Is it the images of popular culture? The long-haired man with the long robe, the blue eyes, the piercing eyes, holding a little lamb. Is it Jesus who's meek and mild and gentle? If I'm honest, that's generally where my mind tends to go because that's what I've always seen. But I want to say to you this morning that there are ways that, that Jesus is represented in Scripture that I think we will do well to remember. You see, I think when we think of Jesus, we need to see him as the one whose voice is like the roars of many waters. Revelations 1 verse 15. We need to see him like the one whose eyes are like flaming torches. Daniel chapter 10 verse 5. We need to see him as the one who's not just called wonderful counselor or prince of peace, but mighty God. Friends, Isaiah 9 verse 6. We need to see him as the one whose mouth contains a sharp two-edged sword. Be able to divide between soul and spirit, friends. The one who brings judgment and love. We need to see him as the one who rides on the white horse, whose name is faithful and true, who comes not only to give peace, but also, friends, to judge and to bring war. Revelations 19 verse 1. I'm not saying that we should fear Jesus. Please don't get me wrong. But in the season that we are in and the season that we will be going in as the church, and I'm talking about the global church, and of course it affects us here as Hope Rock Church, And considering the enemy that is mounting right now at our northern border, these locust-like scorpions and horses with lion's teeth and asps, asps on their tails. People misunderstand me all the time, asps. We need to make sure, friends, that our perspective of Jesus is big enough that it assures us for once and for all that no weapon formed against us will prosper. You see, if we have this micro view of who Jesus is, and we see him as this meek, mild, and gentle, gentle individual. We don't see him as the commander of the Lord's army. Friends, he is fierce. He is mighty. He is a warrior. He's a warrior who loves his people. And believe me, he will see to it that his church will come into its redemption. There is no weapon formed against us that, that, that will prosper. In, John, in John's vision, he sees Jesus as being so big that his one foot is on the sea and his one foot is on the land. Do we have a giant-sized vision of our king? Or do we have a micro-vision of our king? Jesus is a giant, friends. Not just big enough to control the affairs of the earth, but to control the affairs of the universe. This tells me that as we move into the season of waging more and more spiritual warfare, 
What we need is the peace, love, and grace that only Jesus can bring. And at the same time, a right-sized perspective of the might, power, and justice that he carries. Because after all, friends, Jesus is both the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world, and he's the lion who will come and judge those that rejected the lamb. We can't take one without the other, friends. And we need this king. Verse 3. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Third point, for us to be secure in God's love and in his protection, we need to start getting comfortable with the unknown. So often, if we're honest with ourselves as believers, we think that we have the right to question God. Sometimes we think, that we have to be able to know and understand everything there is to know about God. Or worse still, we put ourselves under all this pressure to try and explain exactly who God is to a lost and dying world. Friends, let me just tell you this right now. You will never know the depths of God's character. Never. The Bible says that for the rest of eternity, we will discover facets of our King. For every day that we live in eternity, there will be something new that we discover about an awesome creator who was never created himself and will never get to the point where we say, man, I figured out God. The point I'm trying to make is there are some things that we are not meant to know. There are some things in scripture that we just don't understand. Why are the gifts of God irrevocable? R.T. Kendall always says this. Why is it that Saul, after God departed from him and his spirit was no longer with him, was able to prophesy? Why is it? Why does God do that? Why does he give gifts to some people who have lost their minds? Why do they still get used by God? I don't know, but it's okay. God does, and his plans are better than my plans, and so I trust him. In Isaiah 55, verse 8, Jesus, or God himself, says this to him. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. We are not meant to figure out God, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. Don't make me... Don't make me don't mistake me. God wants us to know him, but there are elements that we will just not understand. And that's okay. Deuteronomy 29 verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. What has been revealed to us? Jesus Christ, the Son, the Gospel. See, that's what's happening here in Revelation. In these two verses, we see these seven thunders. Now, we don't know what they are. I think they're part of the secret things of God. Now, you might be able to say, well, maybe these things are judgment because throughout the Old Testament, judgment and thunder comes together. But the truth is we just don't know what they are. And I would be crazy to try and explain it to you because I don't know what it is. But that's okay. Because the God that spoke this universe into existence, who formed you before the foundation of this world, who is, has, and will forever be every, holding everything together, is big enough and powerful enough for us to trust. And we don't have to understand all the details. Sometimes we will ask ourselves the question, Lord, why is this happening? Why do you allow this to happen? And you can go to God, and you can plead with God, and you can ask God. Just remember, His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. If they were, we would really be in trouble. But there is something we do know. Verse 5. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. 
but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God, this is important, would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Do you want to know what the one certainty is that we can stand on? Is God's plan will be fulfilled. It's a powerful picture because amidst all these unknown things, there is a reminder that there is one certainty that we can carry through the days of distress, whether that is as a result of the judgment of God or us being in the crucible of our own afflictions. And that is that God's plan will come to bear. The plan that came from before the foundation of this world. I've got to say this, you know, sometimes we, we have this weird picture and we, we think that, you know, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were up in heaven and they were looking down on Eden and they saw Adam and Eve playing around with the fruits and stuff and it was all great until one of them ate the apple and then they were like, oh, man, we didn't catch that. How did he, how did he do that? How did she do that? Why did they fall? Why did they sin? Why did one third of heaven's army rebel against us? Do you know that the plans of God to send Jesus Christ to this earth to die on the cross were formed before the world was even created, before the beings in heaven were even created? This plan was always in God's heart. Daniel 12 verse 7, And I heard the man clothed in linen speaking of Jesus who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times and half a time. Don't ask me how long that is, but it's a time, time and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an, holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. God has been telegraphing his message of salvation from the very beginning. It continued through the prophets. 500 to 600 years before Jesus was even born, Daniel sees the same vision that John sees in heaven. It's at least 580 years from when John pens, or 680 years when John pens this revelation, that he sees the same thing. God's heart didn't change. He hasn't made a mistake. There wasn't a plan A and a plan B. Jesus is not the plan B. He is, has, and always will be God's plan A. He's our plan A. And you know what that tells me? is that if God had the plan for the salvation and the redemption for mankind on his heart before the foundation of the world, Jesus knew who he was coming to save. That tells me that you and me have been in God's heart from day one. And we need to start getting this reality because we so often question our own salvation. We wonder, are we saved? Aren't we saved? Oh, am I still a believer? Am I not a believer? Am I good enough for you, God? You were in God's heart before he formed you. Jeremiah tells us that before he even formed us, he knitted our inward parts together. God knows you more than anybody else, but he's known you for eternity. There is no demon and no devil that can snatch you out of the hand of the Father. We need to start living with the conviction that the cross was enough. Jesus on the cross cried out, Tetelestai, it is finished. Not it might be finished, it's almost done. Hopefully these people will be able to stay saved. No, it is finished. You are saved. If you're a born-again believer this morning and you trust in the finished work of the cross, there is nothing that can take that away from you. At least that's what I believe. And that's what I think Scripture says. Amen. Verse 8, Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. Just notice, this scroll is open. It's not closed. The first scroll that we encounter, the plans of God are sealed. Only Jesus can open it. This particular scroll is open. And it's important that it's open when we understand what the scroll is. So I went to the angel and told him, give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. 
And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I'd eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. For us to live and to be secure in God's love and protection, we have to trust that the gospel is God's plan. This goes with the other point. This is not some rescue mission. This is God's plan. There's a few things happening in this verse. Firstly, John hears this voice. We assume it's God the Father. Tells him, go and take the scroll from Jesus' hand. John does it. He takes the scroll. And then Jesus said to him, don't just take the scroll. I want you to eat the scroll. I want you to consume the scroll. I want the scroll to become part of who you are. But there is a catch. This thing will be as sweet as honey on your lips, but it will be as bitter to your stomach as you can hardly even imagine. That's my own emphasis there. Sorry. The picture takes us right back to the seven seals. I don't know if you remember the first two seals of the seven seals, the white horseman and the red horseman. Remember how I said, in my interpretation, the white horseman represents Jesus Christ bringing the gospel that will save humanity to the nations of the world. It's a message of hope, a message of redemption, a message of peace. It is a sweet message. It is a message that says no matter who you once were, God loves you. And his son died for you. It's very sweet. But then guess what? Unfortunately, the red horse of persecution follows, friends. Persecution will come to all of us who preach and live for Jesus Christ. There is no mistaking that this morning. And that, friends, produces bitterness. And I want to tell you, it's been exactly like that for me in my own life. And maybe your testimony is the same. I don't know. I was a hopeless, rubbish, crack addict with no hope, no future, with nothing. In fact, I was called an oxygen thief for most of my life. Survivor of multiple suicide attempts and things I don't even want to mention this morning. Until one day I met a Savior, June 1999. I'll never forget it. I also met my wife. I'll never forget that. But I met my Savior in June 1999. And you know what he told me? He told me that he loved me as I was. He said that, you know, all the things that I'd done, all the things that people had said, all the stuff that I had done that was terrible, he accepted me just how I was. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, I want to tell you that's how it is. You don't have to go to church, read your Bible, or even pray before Jesus will say, okay, you know what, I'm going to save you today. You don't have to be a good person. In fact, God doesn't save good people because they think they don't need saving. God takes us as we are at the foot of the cross. The Bible says that it is by grace we are saved through faith because of what Jesus has done so that nobody may boast. I met my Savior, and you know what? It changed my life. It changed my perspective. It was the sweetest moment of my life. It gave me fire. It gave me zeal. It brought the Holy Spirit into my life. It gave me a passion to want to preach God's word. It was the honey in my mouth. But then you know what? Hmm. Sanctification. It's a nasty word that. Started to work itself out in my life. Because as much as God took me as I was, He said to me, that's not where you're going to stay, buddy. In fact, I have work for you to do. You're going to start changing. You're going to start adapting. You're going to start becoming the man of God that I've destined you to become. And you know, let me tell you, it was hard then and it's hard today. Sanctification is not meant to be easy. And it didn't end there because it wasn't just being sanctified. It was the persecution that comes with being a Christ follower. Whether that is as a result of the world rejecting the Savior that I represent or whether that is as a result of the persecution that comes from within God's people. Believe me when I say this to you, sheep bite. We get persecuted in every area. Sometimes it's hard when it's closest to us. Sometimes it's from people out there. It doesn't matter where it comes from. There is a bitterness attached with this gospel message. It's a reality check for us, friends. Jeremiah sums it up so powerfully. In Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16, it says, Your words were found, and I ate them. 
And your words became to me a joy and a delight of my heart, for I'm called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Jeremiah understands what the honey tastes like. He's like, I read your word. I've accepted your precepts. And guess what? You are the love of my life. I love you, Lord. But then guess what happens in verse 17? I did not sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because your hand was upon me, for you had filled me with indignation. All of a sudden, Jeremiah starts to become sanctified. No longer is he going to be a part of the world system. No longer is he going to sit with all of his old buddies. In fact, nobody wants to sit with Jeremiah because nobody wants to know what God has to say. And then he says this at the end. Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like the waters that fail? If this is not a picture of honey and bitterness, I don't know what is. Jeremiah goes from ecstasy to despair in three verses. Sometimes I experience that every morning of my life. I wake up, I'm in ecstasy. Fifteen minutes later, I'm in despair. And it has nothing to do with my wife waking up or anything like that. It's just the reality of the world that we live in. My point is this. If you're here today and you have been taught in your life that being a follower of Christ is always going to be easy, you have not been taught the gospel. Because here's the reality. It's not always going to be easy. There are going to be moments of ecstasy in it. And there are going to be moments of despair. And if you're undecided here this morning, my responsibility as somebody who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross is to tell you with all honesty, this will be the sweetest decision you ever make to accept the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be the greatest decision you ever make. But let me tell you, there will be moments in your life where you will have stomach aches. Derek spoke about some of those moments this morning. But even in that reality, we can create, we can take great and huge encouragement. One of them, my most favorite passages in all of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which, clo- which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let me tell you, you don't need endurance for things that are easy. You don't need endurance if it's not going to test you and challenge you, friends. But here's the clincher. When we do this, When we go through this, when we face moments that are going to test us and give us a sore stomach, it says looking to Jesus, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And this is what blows me away. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and and he's seated at the right hand of God. I've always wondered what is the joy that was set before Jesus Christ? It was knowing that the plan that he set out before the foundation of this world would come to its completion. And you know who's part of that plan? You and me. I am the joy set before Jesus Christ. You are the, the joy set before Jesus Christ. He went to the cross so that we could live this life as victorious children of God, not as defeated people that live in a broken and fallen world. It's all worth it, friends, because there's a joy set before us too at the end. And we can take comfort knowing that one day, whether it is when Jesus comes back or whether when it is we die, whichever comes first, we can take comfort knowing that all of our sanctification will have come to an end and all of our persecution and suffering will be gone, not just for a day, not just for a moment, but for the rest of eternity. This life is as close to hell that any Christ follower will ever get. Jesus is our joy. And that makes all the bitterness worth it. Ben can come up. I'm going to close with this. There's one part left in this passage, and it comes from verse 11. 
says, and I was told, this is John speaking, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. You see, John's not just left with this reality of a bittersweet gospel. He's left with a commission. He's left with a mission. He's left with a mandate. And it's the responsibility that every single person in this room as a Christ follower carries today. The responsibility to take the message of the gospel and not just preach on how amazing and wonderful it is, because it is, but also to prepare people for what's coming. There is an army amassed at our northern border. Time is running out. And as great as it is for us as believers to realize that this life is as close to hell as we will ever get, there is a flip side to that coin. Because for the lost, this world is as close to heaven as they will ever get. And that, friends, is scary. God is commissioning us this morning. The commission that was left with John has not changed. It's needed today, in these days, more than ever. And I want to remind us of that commission. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18 is the second part of our statement on that wall. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Discipleship is hard, friends. It's not easy. Baptizing them in the, in the name of the Lord, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. And know this, I will be with you until the end of the age. You know what that tells me? It tells me that there is an end to this age. And I don't know when that end will be. But what I do know is that the end is coming. It could be days, it could be weeks, it could be months, it could be years. But the age will come to an end. Redemption will no longer be possible. And hell will be a reality for many people in this world. And so this morning as a church, there's only one thing left for us to do. And that is for us to know Christ and to make Him known. To all the people God calls us to, to all the friends, all the family members, every single person in our lives, whether you're young or whether you're old, this commission never runs out. There is no retirement in the kingdom of God. Can I ask us to stand? Do you want to come share that word with you? This is my wife, by the way. Um, so I really also had the same sense that uh, exactly what Derek shared this morning. Um, I just wanted to just pray for people to just step into that breakthrough. Um, you know, I don't know if there's anybody that, you know, maybe, you know, just that hard time of... Um, I just had a picture and I believe there's people maybe there's this cloud over you you know and it's just every day is hard and I believe that God wants us to walk in victory that victory that Derek spoke about because Jesus loves us Amen. and um, so I just want to speak against the lies of the enemy Amen. that will tell you you know you're not loved you're not good enough you know, if you've made mistakes, you can't overcome that. Because Jesus says, I love you. Amen. So could we all bow our heads? And I want everybody just, just to really just meditate on Jesus, saying to you, I love you. Mm. I have a plan and a purpose for your life. 
every individual in this room has a uni unique plan. Amen. God has put in you unique gifts, Amen. a unique personality. Hallelujah. Because He has a path for you. He has a mission for you. Amen. And so, just receive that. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter the mistakes you've made. You know, if you are a Christ follower and you make mistakes, you know, Jesus um, doesn't disregard those mistakes and cast Amen. you aside. He uses those mistakes to grow you and to teach you Amen. and prepare you for what's next. And so, Lord, I just want to lift up every single person in this room today. And I just want to pray for your breakthrough in every single life in the name of Jesus. Amen. Lord, you have given us victory. Amen. Victory is ours. We don't need to stay defeated. Amen. We don't need to be we don't need to live in fear. Amen. We don't need to listen to the lies of the enemy where he just comes and harasses us and tells us that we can't be used and we can't get over Amen. anything. And I just come against those lies in the name of Jesus and Amen. I speak freedom over Amen. every single person in this room Amen. today. Holy Amen. Spirit, will you just come right now and break chains in the name Amen. of Jesus. Amen. I speak healing in over Jesus every name. sickness in the name of Jesus. I speak restoration over every broken relationship. I speak life over every marriage in the name of Jesus, Lord. I pray, Lord, Jesus, come now in your power. It's only through your power that we can be set free. And Amen. I pray freedom yes. in this place today. Amen. Your freedom, your victory, yes. in the name of Jesus. Amen. We yes, receive Lord. it Amen. in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going we're gonna to sing one last song and then we'll close the meeting. But if anyone does need personal prayer or you need someone to lay hands on you, perhaps there is something specific you need us to pray for, we will be up here in front. And that goes out there for anyone that doesn't know who the Lord is. Maybe this morning something is stirred in your heart and you want to know more about Jesus. Please come up to the front. The elders will be here. Some of the deacons will be here. And we're here to pray for you. So don't be uh, fearful. Come up here to the front. We want to lay hands on you. And if it's specific, like I said, we want to trust the, the healing of God to take place in your life. But let's worship our King. <laughs>